Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the final Corner Kick podcast of the year 2021. And it is a pleasure to have a full roundtable on this show. I am joined by a man who apparently has a raging shrimp allergy. The shrimp at last night's um, family dinner has taken him out. It is Nathan Strauss. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I do have a meeting scheduled with an allergist at some point in the new year. But uh, at, for right now, uh, shrimp has put me under the weather. So uh, if my voice is a little scratchy, nope. there's, your, there's your reason. For context, Nathan, Caleb, and I all had dinner together, Christmas Eve dinner. And uh, Nathan, <laughs> it was a fish dinner. And not knowing that Nathan had an allergy to shrimp, uh, there was a lot of shrimp being served at this fish dinner. So alas, Nathan has been the uh, sole casualty of that. But I am joined by a man who, you know, not allergic to shrimp, but certainly allergic to his team scoring goals. It is Caleb Rhodes. Yes. Uh, but, you know, maybe things are things looking up. Looks like Dembele is perhaps re-signing because nobody wants him. And we're also, looks like pretty be close to signing Fer and Torres, which I'm actually pretty excited about. Maybe we can talk about a little later in the show. I think we will. I think we are going to get on to Barcelona, particularly that Barcelona-Sevilla game where I thought they played pretty well. And also, you know, the Fer and Torres news. We're also going to talk a bit about Liverpool Spurs. We're going to discuss, you know, some refereeing controversies. And then, you know, at the very end of this episode, we're going to get into our favorite moments in football soccer of 2020. One, seeing as this is probably our uh, year-ending podcast. But lads, let us begin first and foremost with the Premier League and really what is being called, you know, the game of the season in the league so far. It was Spurs to Liverpool to a game with a lot of quality and controversy. It began with, uh, you know, news coming out that a lot of Liverpool players, particularly Fabinho, Van Dyke, and Curtis Jones were suffering from uh, positive COVID-19 tests. They have since returned to the team, you know, following this match. But for this game, Liverpool were without, you know, a lot of their first choice star players. And they went into it with the midfield of Tyler Morton, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, and James Milner. And lads, this game did not disappoint. No, I mean, it was, it was pretty much all-out action um, from the go. I think we finally saw... Harry Kane at his best, and maybe we'll say also his worst. Um, and it, it was generally entertaining. Obviously, Spurs definitely took advantage of the fact that Liverpool's midfield and defense was rather weakened and was further weakened late on in the game when Andy Robertson, who you know was perhaps having a you know man of the match type performance, had a bit of a had a bit of a rash moment, and after. Uh, you know, a quick VAR check was sent off in a moment that definitely changed the complexion of the game late on. Yeah, I just think it's hard to talk about this game without talking about Harry Kane for better and for worse in sickness and in health. Because uh, yes, he got that early goal, but he committed a foul on Andrew Robertson in the 19th to 20th minute. That was as clear-cut a red card as you will ever see. I think if Robertson's leg had been planted on the ground, that's like, you know, a shattered ankle and maybe, you know, a torn ACL or something. Um, and of course, he only gets a yellow because, you know, he's part of the England, uh, you know, old boys club. He's the England captain. But if Kane is sent off in the 20th minute with Liverpool up one nil, or rather with, with Spurs up one nil, this game looks very, very different. And you saw a whole lot of bookings later on in this one, including bookings for, for Jurgen Klopp. Um, but I don't know. I think if you're Liverpool, you feel a little bit hard done by by the fact that Kane was able to stay on the pitch with what was a you know a textbook sort of studs up rash challenge to your the team's best player on the day. Yeah, I mean, I think that Kane challenge was obviously a red card. It was you know an egregious foul, and I think you even had you know referees, former referees like Mark Clattenburg coming out and saying that you know 
had Andy Robertson's foot been planted, you know, he probably wouldn't have been able to stand and walk around with his family on Christmas, which is quite indicative as to how dangerous that challenge really was. And I think, you know, the refereeing controversy stemmed uh, into an incident later in the first half where Diogo Jota gets shoved in the penalty box. No penalty is given. And that's why, you know, Jurgen Klopp receives that booking and probably, you know, could have gotten sent off, you know, after the match as he like went up to Paul Tierney and confronted him in front of the cameras saying that he has no problems with referees, only you. And it really was, you know, a horror show afternoon for Paul Tierney, who had a terrible display. And, uh, you know, you probably should see him get suspended for a few games. However, he will be on VAR duty for the next biggest match of the Premier League season, which is Liverpool and Chelsea. But Laz, I think this stems into a bigger conversation surrounding no refereeing once again. I think we talked about this uh, towards like around this time, towards the beginning of the season last year in 2020, and it's rearing its ugly head now. And it seems like, you know, the consistency of refereeing, particularly in the Premier League, and as we're also going to discuss, you know, in La Liga with Casemiro and Real Madrid, but particularly, you know, this past weekend, there was also the horrible incident involving Ederson, which he probably should have gotten sent off and Jao Cancelo potentially as well in the uh, Man City Wolves match. And I think there is just sort of a lack of, you know, quality, refereeing and decision-making and confusion surrounding, you know, the use of VAR once again in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, last year, the whole VAR controversy, right, was, you know, minute offsides determined by, you know, quantum mechanics more more than anything else. And this year, it just seems like referees have, like, an inability to just make the kind of obvious calls in front of their eyes. I'm not really sure what to make of it entirely. It's also perhaps a matter of, you know, because so many games have been canceled, where we're scrutinizing things more than ever, and maybe this happens more often than we think. Although, as you said, this this Kane challenge was like, you know, fairly egregious by any standard. It was not just a red card offense. It was like, you know, a, one of the clear and and obvious ones. I would say too. So I, I don't fully know what to make of it all, but. Well, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking about James MacArthur uh, kicking right through the plant leg of Bukayo Saka when the ball was 20 yards away earlier this year. That wasn't even looked at. And then there was the stomp on Tomiyasu's neck from, I think, Ben Godfrey. That again, you could see him looking right at his neck while giving this, you know, giving him a, you know, studs to the face. I think it does happen more often than not. And sometimes I think when, the better team wins and the, or the deserved team wins, you're more willing to forget about it. But it is pretty shambolic, especially, you know, when you look at the fact that like English referees aren't chosen for the biggest events because they're not up to it. You look at, you know, the likes of a Felix Brick, for example, or Reich, uh, or even like Mateo Lahaz and Maliga, like there are just better, better officiating crews out there than anything in the Premier League. And for a league that's, you know, the best in the world, or at least the most heavily financed in the world, that has to change. And I think it's really tough to see that changing because I was reading a piece in The Athletic, you know, a few months ago where it, it, it they were, but essentially the crux of this piece is that, you know, there is a lack of competition for high quality refereeing, particularly in England, because, you know, the vitriol and response to these referees has become, you know, so violent and so personal that it's just not seen as like an attractive job option. For people and so you know as time has progressed you know there are less and less referees and therefore you know less and less competition and that breeds you know a bit of complacency towards the top of you know the refereeing pyramid because these referees know that you know there's no one hot on their heels to come and you know uh, take their place and I think if you're the Premier League you know if this continues to become such a a hot button topic and you know the errors become you know plain for the world to see maybe it's a case of you know you you go on a campaign to find more referees and get more people certified and get more people up to speed in terms of qualifications you know there there are referees in the championships and the championship and you know the lower divisions of the the English pyramid who potentially you know deserve an opportunity in the Premier League and maybe you know there's an opportunity to look at you know, bringing in some referees from abroad as well. 
you know, both in terms of like looking towards Scotland and the Republic of Ireland and Ireland, or maybe even, you know, going into the greater Europe to find referees. But that's like a conversation for another time. I think what we all want, though, from this conversation is just a measure of consistency. You know, the the Harry Kane challenge, Paul Tierney doesn't even look at the video review screen to determine whether or not he should you know, award more than a yellow card yet for the Andy Robertson challenge, which even I admit, you know, Robertson probably should have gotten sent off. That was the right decision for him going right through the leg of Emerson Royale. But Paul Tierney, you know, goes to the review screen for that. So I think it's just, you know, you're, you're looking for, particularly as, you know, a fan who's watching this game, you're looking for you no know, viable justifications for what happens when, you know, in the flow of a match and in terms of, you know, officiating. Yeah, well, and I also think that, right, like, he gave, he still gave Kane a yellow card. And so in those circumstances, I don't know why it shouldn't just be, especially for, like, potentially kind of, like, violent conduct, you know, you should be able to VAR review that. I think I'm still, like, a little fuzzy on the situations under which, like, decisions like this end up under VAR review versus not, or whether the ref just gets to decide whether to VAR review it or not. But that seems to, you know, undermine the point of VAR. Um, so I think definitely the, the use case for video review um, needs to be ironed out a little more in these contexts when it's like plain to see to most people that the decision was wrong. Yeah, and I guess the last thing for me on this is that I do think that the the VAR decisions on offsides have actually been a lot better this year. They've also been a lot, lot faster. Like um, I don't really have many complaints about the way we've seen it used for offsides. I think that's good because that should be the most objective, you know, ruling. Uh, like either you are behind the last defender when the ball is played or not. I mean, we've seen the thicker lines help make it so that you know we're not seeing those fingertip, you know, rules uh, anymore. But it does sort of mean that we can you know direct more of our complaints towards everything we've just discussed. Right, so let's move on from refereeing in the Premier League to talk about another issue that has, I think, really rocked the league, particularly in the past one to two weeks. And it's something that we sort of foreshadowed on our last podcast. But yes, once again, we have seen game postponements due to increased cases of COVID-19 within the Premier League. The Omicron variant is, you know, running rampant globally. And, you know, the English League is no exception to this. Boxing Day fixtures, which are such a hallmark and tradition of English football, have fallen victim to COVID. You know, games such as Liverpool, Leicester, Liverpool, Leicester, excuse me, Liverpool, games such as Liverpool, Leeds, and Burnley, Everton have fallen victim to it. And even just today, it seems as though Aston Villa will be going managerless on the touchline with Steven Gerrard testing positive for COVID ahead of their match against Chelsea. Caleb, this was something that I think, you know, we had kind of anticipated a few weeks ago that maybe we would lose some matches and definitely some players to COVID, you know, that has come to fruition. But it looks as though, you know, particularly with a meeting that was held earlier this week with Premier League officials where they determined that they did not need to uh, halt the game week that takes place on December the 28th, that it looks like we're just going to soldiers through here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, depending on what you mean by soldier through, but right, I mean, what was it, last weekend on Saturday, we saw every single game except Leeds Arsenal canceled. The next day on Sunday, Everton Leicester were canceled. Um, and I think, you know, there's a few more cancellations coming up. I think they need a more durable response here because already at this point, it's causing some kind of rather wonky uh you know, things. For instance, Tottenham have only played 15 games while, you know, most teams have played 18, but some have also played 17 and some have played 16. And I think it just makes it very complicated for scheduling going forward unless they kind of keep everyone on the same page. And I think the issue right now too, and, you know, maybe we can kind of roll into the EFL Cup quarterfinal game between Leicester and Liverpool is there aren't good reporting protocols for teams right now, like say in like the NBA where you have to, or the NFL where you have to announce, you know, who is on the COVID list. 
In England, that's not the case. And I think then it becomes this weird thing. And, you know, it didn't work out in Liverpool, Leicester for Leicester, but there becomes a weird competitive edge um, that can be gained. And so I think they probably should have paused for everyone. Um, and right now, I think this kind of shotgun approach to dealing with the situation um, is not going to work out in the you know, short to medium term and probably not the long term either. Well, it's really, it's, it's really interesting to me because unlike in American sports leagues, you actually do have players who are able, you know, who are under contract with your club, who actually are able to come into your first team if need be. The, 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 player, the list of players the Premier League clubs are using to, to determine viability of playing games is that submitted squad list that you have to turn in you know, before the end of the transfer window. But as we saw last year, uh, it's actually totally possible for your team to just call up youth players and have them play uh, as well. So it's sort of interesting that, excuse me, you know, because there isn't that fixed, uh, that fixed method of reporting, uh, it does enable teams to sort of finagle uh, ways out of playing games that probably should get played. Uh, like, we did see sort of Bielsa talk about how injury, they probably could have gotten an exemption from playing Arsenal, um, just given the number of injuries that they had. Uh, but, you know, because it wasn't COVID, they decided to play the game anyways. The I lack think the of criteria, like having, yeah, sorry, Nathan, I think the criteria that the league is given is that if you have 13 players plus a goalkeeper, you should be good to go. Right. And, but the thing, the thing that I, the thing that I would say though, is that, you know, in theory, every team should always have that number of players able to play. It's just might it just might not end up being those players from your initial squad list, which is what makes all of this so dubious. And why you know I would have advocated for a league-wide pause to sort of figure out, uh, you know, to get players vaxxed and then boosted. You know, we were seeing reports of clubs like United having a fifty percent vaccination rate. Like that's just unacceptable. And I think. I was a big fan of, of Klopp coming out and saying, like, look, we wouldn't sign an unvaccinated player. Because just from a business perspective, like, if you're going to be susceptible to infection or reinfection or more susceptible, it's not a good, uh, it's just not a solid business method. So I don't know. I think this ties into a lot of things and sort of been a little ramble e, but I do think it's important to really figure out a way to uh, make COVID reporting mandatory and standardized so that. There's just a little bit more transparency, but as we talked about with refereeing, transparency isn't exactly the greatest strength of the uh, the English FA. No, and I think we can you know extrapolate all of that to this League Cup quarterfinal between Liverpool and Leicester at Anfield. You know, Leicester were coming into this having about a week and a half of rest, having not played a lot of games due to you know various COVID positives in their squad. Yet they arrived at Anfield with a I don't want to call it. I don't want to be like a conspiracy monger here, but a suspiciously full strength squad, you know, including the likes of Pat Sindaka, Yuri Tielemans, Jamie Vardy, Kagler Soyuncu, and the rest. You know, they did have Wilfred and Didi filling in at center back. And they were coming up against you know, a Liverpool team that still had, you know, some COVID deficiencies in the team. You know, obviously no Van Dyke, no Curtis Jones, who probably would have played in this game, no Fabinho still, no Thiago Alcantara. Um, and it was a heavily rotated Liverpool team. You could probably say it was, you know, the C, B minus Liverpool team with the likes of Connor Bradley, Neko Williams starting this game. And they did not get off to a roaring start. Liverpool were 3-1 down at the half. <laughs> On comes Diogo Jota. Uh, two brings the game back to 3-2. And in the 95th minute, Takumi Minamino scores to make it 3-3 to Liverpool. And in the end, Liverpool go through on penalties in front of the traveling Leicester support. And I have to say, this was probably the, you know, this and I think the Atletico Madrid victories this season as a Liverpool fan were probably the most satisfying wins of the season just because of how, you know, sus the Leicester situation was coming into this game, you know, James Madison scoring the third Leicester goal and doing like a knee slide celebration in front of the cop, you know, the Leicester traveling support were singing like really offensive songs about, you know, the homeless crisis in Liverpool or the homelessness crisis in Liverpool. So it was like just overall a very, very feel good win from a Liverpool perspective. But I think, you know, 
for value for entertainment, the League Cup in the past few seasons has produced some you know incredible games of football. Yeah, also, I, I will say this is another example of Nick choosing to single out a, a Liverpool player sort of pre-game or during oh the game. Oh, my God. And then, <laughs> I knew yeah, this was going to happen. <laughs> and, and then, so for instance, I think literally perhaps like moments before Minamino scored the winner, Nick texted something like, wow, really reminded how trash Minamino is with this game today. You know, when you're uh, a fan and you get frustrated with your team <laughs> and how they're playing, sometimes, you know, you let things slip. I didn't realize that Minamino has like an incredible scoring record when he's played this season, though. Well, here I have the exact text. Why don't we read it verbatim? At 4.10 p.m., Nick texts, Minamino sucks. I think I've given up on him. <laughs> At 4.13, <laughs> Nick texts, Minamino just got an assist. At 4.40, Nick goes, OMG, it's Takumi Minamino. I'm dead. <laughs> it was a real gambit so, of well, I feel the, like, the full I feel like gambit of emotions. Were, I feel like you were more willing to uh, criticize him because it's looking increasingly like AFCON's getting canceled, so he's not going to be like a starting left winger for you uh, for like a month, but Still, it was it was a rather funny moment. And I think, you know, as you kind of said, this game had the potential to be, you know, a bit of a farce a la when Liverpool played like Aston Villa, like U12 team um, in, was that the FA Cup or is that the League Cup also? I think it was, I it was, think the, it was FA the FA Cup. Cup. Even FA worse, Cup. right? Like, like last year. Um, but definitely a game that did not, you know, I think put Leicester in the greatest light um, and I think exposed some of the, the issues with with how soccer in England um, is running right now. It also sets up the uh, the yearly Liverpool Arsenal League Cup fixture, which I'm pretty sure has been played like five times in the last seven years. It seems like it always happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was a big fan of Arsenal's League Cup win over Sunderland. I know it's League One opposition, but what can you do? Um, but yeah, also what a big moment for for Beeman Kelleher, who I think is pretty. Good. Like as far as homegrown goalies go, I think it's he's he's pretty good. But yeah, Nick, I definitely would would have been frustrated had I been Jurgen Klopp thinking, oh, like we're gonna get Liverpool or rather Leicester's Academy because clearly their key players are are out with COVID. And then, you know, they roll up with basically 10 of 11 first teamers in their in their starting eleven. But you know, Klopp gets the last laugh after all. That was another moment of great joy when like Casper Schmeichel is trying to do the whole like big man intimidate the penalty taker situation. And then he inevitably like he doesn't save a single penalty. He gets nowhere near any of them. You know, the Takumi Minamino miss, he just puts it on on over the bar or on the bar and over. And, you know, Kukumi Kelleher, who's this really kind of like quiet chilled out present you know comes in and saves two and is the hero of the day and also the Diogo Jota you know telling the uh the, I'll bleep this but he like scores the winning penalty and then he like runs over celebrates in front of the Leicester fans and he like tells them to go fuck off like that was like it was overall like it felt more like a, a Champions League night at Anfield rather than uh you know a, a Carabao Cup evening but speaking of, you know, a great Carabao Cup evening, I think it really, we do need to touch on Nathan Strauss's Arsenal in their 5-1 trouncing of Sunderland. And Nathan, an incredible Eddie Nketiah performance capped off by an absolute butte of a, a hat-trick goal for the Arsenal striker. And I think we can all... I think you asked us a few months ago, you know, whether or not we had fully bought into... Mikel Arteta as Arsenal coach at the beginning of that uptick in form. Arsenal are really now laying claim to that fourth place spot in the Premier League table and have been playing some really wonderful football courtesy of the youngsters, you know, in particular, you know, Gabriel Martinelli, Emil Smith-Rowe impressing. Yeah, I mean, Arsenal had that really poor, you know, week where they lost to United at Old Trafford and then gave up that screamer of a winner uh, to Everton, but they've rebounded really nicely since then, blowing out Southampton, destroying West Ham at home, um, which is, I think, a, a bigger result than it might look on paper, just given where the teams were in the table. Arsenal, you know, probably could have won eight or nine, one against Leeds uh, last weekend as well. And then 
you know, the Carabao Cup is, is it's whatever, right? Like it's the, the third tier competition. As, as I said in the group chat, uh, it's one of those competitions where like, I will celebrate it vehemently if we win it. But if we lose to Liverpool over two legs, you know, I won't really be all too disheartened. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I still believe that Arsenal will end up finishing between fifth and sixth, just looking at, you know, the games in hand that teams like United and Spurs have right now. But I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, the youth movement and how structured uh, it's looked when it comes to, you know, the players who Arsenal have brought back in. And Eddie Nketiah's hat trick was fantastic. And he's a player who's, you know, his contract is expiring. I know I could have wanted to keep him, but, uh, you know, the other highlight of this game was probably Charlie Patino, the, the top rated player in at Hale End right now, uh, you know, making his debut and then scoring. Uh, so all in all, the vibes around Arsenal are very positive. Uh, they also have an easier game tomorrow against uh, Norwich at Carrow Road before Tuesday, you know, taking on Wolves. So if you can get six points in these next two games, even if you lose on New Year's Day to Man City, I think Arsenal are in a pretty good place. And, uh, you know, obviously, if AFCON does get cancelled, Arsenal are a team that will benefit pretty heavily from that as well, even without, you know, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang being involved in either. I know, I know you are obviously more excited to watch Arsenal, perhaps both of you. But I, I love watching or just seeing, like, who Sunderland have these days, right? Because I still think of them as this, like, kind of crappy Premier League club, but it's crazy to me. They've now spent like four seasons in League One, but they still have my favorite kind of British-American guy, Lyndon Gooch, doing his job out at left wing back on the day. And then also uh, Alex Pritchard, um, who was a, you know, Spurs youth product who back in my like sophomore year of high school, FM save was like my first, you know, youth attacking player off the bench and so i definitely have a bit of a soft spot uh for this team but definitely on the arsenal points they are certainly trending up um and you know i think their their position right now is a little overstated given you know the games in hand of teams around them but they are certainly exceeding my rather low expectations uh for them this year um, and they're definitely at a very different place in terms of their youth development and sort of, you know, the the plan than they were a season ago. And so I think credit has to be given to, you know, Arteta and also, you know, the transfer uh, masterminds at the club. And I will I think- say one last point on Arsenal before moving on, perhaps. But uh, the fact that Arsenal have been able to get all of these games in and win all of these games I think is going to help them as well, just because I think you have to factor in the fact that when United and Spurs and even West Ham and other teams uh, are making up these games, it's going to come at a time that's far more congested, right? Like they're going to end up suffering a little bit just based on having to make up these games later on. Obviously, it's I, I don't want to see players get COVID, but I do think there's something to be said for the fact that Arsenal have been able to follow their schedule basically to the to the day so far and you know, I think it gives them a bit of a safety net later on this year. Speaking of the plan, let's go to another man with a plan, and that is Xavi Hernandez <laughs> at FC Barcelona. Bit of a rough patch for the new Barcelona coach, you know, losing 1-0 to an inform Real Betis side, it has to be said. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, a few draws here and there, a not-so-great draw against Osasuna. I want to say, uh, I don't remember. Sorry, I don't just, remember. Just, it was, just, I think it was a yeah, some some poor results, but uh, they were coming up a year end game. You know, the last match of 2021 for Xavi in Barcelona against Sevilla at the. Oh shit! I just forgot the stadium. The Estadio Ramon Sanchez Pijuan. Yes, there. In Sevilla, <laughs> in Sevilla, and um, you have to say, like, I thought it was one of the better performances, you know, of the the short tenured Xavi era so far, Caleb. It seems as though, you no, know, the youth has really bled in well under Xavi. Xavi has been instilling them with kind of this no fear policy. It seems like the positioning has gone up a tick under him. Players like Dembele look a little bit revived. Dembele probably scored, could have scored the winner in this game. However, his shot goes careening off the inside of the post. 
I am I was very you know encouraged by what I saw in this game, and it, and and it could be encouragement only goes as far as learning this week that Ferran Torres is headed from Manchester City to Barcelona in a 50 euro deal, 50 million euro deal. Yeah, no, I think this was probably our, even though we drew our best performance under Xavi in a lot of ways, considering that it was against, you know, quality opposition, the team that are currently, even after this game, second place in La Liga with, you know, a very experienced side, Rakitic, who's been great this year, you know, Delaney, Yuan Yordan. Um, but yeah, it was a great game all around. I think after our previous game against Elche, where we had some pretty horrific defensive lapses, the defense definitely looked a little tighter um, in this game. And, you know, Araujo, who has been playing at right back, gets, you know, a great headed goal off of a corner from a great ball in from Usman Dembele. And I will just say, Arujo is just one of the most athletic players I have ever seen. Like, it, it is it is just very impressive, like, how high he's able to jump and sort of how well he's able to move his, you know, massive um, 6'4 body. He also but, already plays, like, a very, very mature center back. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, even though he's playing out of position, which I think says a lot about him, you know, he knows exactly how to read the game. His positioning is really good. Like he's never really caught out at all. And like you said, like he he knows how to use his athleticism to combine, you know, with his you know, technical skill set, which is something I don't think you really learn until you like mature as a player. And I yeah. think particularly as Gerard Piquet, you know, has not made his full return to the mm-hmm. side yet. I think having a player like Araujo in the team is just supremely beneficial for Chavi as kind of he's he's getting his tactics across the board early here. Yeah, no, I, think, I think. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I think Araujo is is the only player, uh, you know, in the back four for this game. What I think should be regarded as like a cornerstone of Barcelona's back line going forward. I think Longley probably ends up getting sold. I know he didn't start, but. Obviously, you know, Jordi Alba is 32, PK is 34, and Eric Garcia, even though he's only 20 years old, is has just been incredibly unconvincing for me. I do think Araujo is your, you know, your rock-solid center back for the future, and it's yeah. finding the right partner for him, whether that's, you know, is it is it Mingueza? Is it uh, is it someone else in the academy? <laughs> it's not right. Mingueza. Because, because <laughs> right, uh, you know, because... because I don't really think that either Garcia or Mingueza are sort of that that next sort of generational defensive talent. Yeah, well, I think, you know, Arujo and Garcia have kind of like opposite profiles. I think Garcia is obviously, you know, I think he's just about 5'10", 5'11", so he's not like, you know, a dominant, super tall defender. But his sort of passing and technique, I think, is is pretty well developed. Arujo is, is I think, a, a lot more raw but I think that's a better place to be. Like I'd rather be, you know, like a 22 year old six, four center back with like great athleticism and, you know, the ability to continue to like sharpen passing than Garcia, who I think it's more difficult to sort of develop the physicality necessary to really be a top defender. But, you know, other than the defensive performances, I think uh, Gavi had another good game. Busquets as well. Um, Frankie Jeong, who's think has been in sort of, mediocre form started to round in a little bit more today. It'll, it'll be interesting. Busquets and Gavi both got yellow cards, so they're both suspended for the next game. So we might see the debut of the, you know, Ricky Puj, Diong, Nico uh, lineup, although it's very possible, too, that Pedri might just be available for selection around then, although I'm not sure he'll start. Um, and I just want to give another moment to, like, Dembele, who I think in the past two or three games has actually looked some of like the most mature I I've seen him. He's still yet to open his account for the season in goal scoring, but you know, he hit the post today. He had five shots, but he also created, you know, five chances, including the assist um, and was, you know, rather dangerous on the dribble as well. And I think he is starting to look a little bit more like the player that, you know, I, I hope he can be, although there's a bad track record of me thinking that, and then, you know, him getting injured for five months or, doing something uh, really stupid. But I think if there was a weakness in this team, it really was 
at striker again, still without Memphis Depay, Luke De Jong, you know, not being trusted um, for that role. And it seems like we're trying to sort of bin him off to Cadiz um, in the transfer window. And Yutgla, you know, who had a good debut or start last time out with a goal against Elche, was rather ineffective um, in this game. And so I think the arrival of someone like Ferran Torres, who can really play anywhere across the front line, um, and, you know, the return of Memphis Depay and Ansu Fati means that offensively, this team, you know, can only go up. And I think it's pretty clear what we're missing right now is finishing. I mean, we outshot Sevilla like 23 to 5. We had an XG of like 1.93. Um, and so I think Chavi probably said it best, which is that he said he basically couldn't sleep the night after the game because he thought they deserved to win that much. And I think that is, you know, a rather encouraging way um, to end the calendar year for Barcelona. Yeah, Nathan Ferran Torres being brought to Barcelona via Goldman Sachs and a loan that was acquired by the club a few months ago to kind of see them through this period of financial uncertainty. It's a lot of money to be paying for a player that Man City brought in for around $30 million last season. However, I think uh, with his record for the Spanish national team and also when he has been able to don the shirt uh, of Man City, that he has a large, large amount of quality, particularly, you know, in front of goal. And as City have gone through this sort of strikerless period, I think there is sort of a, a muting that potentially he could be, you know, the striker that City could turn to. You know, he, we know that he he was developed as a bit more of a right winger, but he certainly is deployed effectively as a number nine for the Spanish national team. Yeah, you know, I... I... I like the transfer. I don't love it just because I think it's a lot of money to spend for a club that's like nominally like in debt for a billion, a billion dollars. But, uh, you know, if you're going to splash the cash, you want to buy young. And I think you also probably want to buy Spanish. That's sort of what um, Barcelona and Madrid have both done to great success in the past when it comes to sort of rebuilding phases. Uh, and obviously, you know, sometimes you strike gold, uh, like, you know, Sometimes you strike gold with these buys and sometimes you don't. But, um, you know, the fact that he's, you know, only 21 years old, going to be 22 later on this year, um, you know, it's still a good transfer, right? And he is young enough that it's sort of, again, like a foolproof kind of buy because his market value is not going to decrease by much, you know, even if he's not great. And at the very worst, you know, he can play all three positions across the front, um, you know, including as a sort of chavi style uh you know you know that false nine position that Xavi is well familiar with having seen you know Iniesta take that up for Spain you know last decade so it's a it's a good buy you know and I hope he finds success because Barcelona right now are just so so thin up front I think it's kind of key to say also that Ansu Fati has yet to work his way back into this team and a front three of you know maybe Memphis Depay Ansu Fati Ferran Torres or, you know, Dembele, Torres, Fati. I can see that producing, you know, a decent goal return in the second half of the season for, for Barcelona. Right. I think that that has to be the kind of working thesis right now, which is that really we have more offensive quality than we're able to put onto the field right now. And hopefully everyone will be fit, you know, in January and we can really start the new year fresh with, you know, the new manager and really kind of attack the Europa league um, and, you know, attack La Liga in, in sort of in pursuit of a top four place. All right. Let's talk briefly about the team in first place in La Liga. It is Real Madrid. They rounded out their calendar with a two, one win against athletic Bilbao. But before that they were held to one, one draw against no, no. Cad- a nil-nil, excuse me. They were held to a nil-nil draw against Cadiz. Caleb, this is a team that is running away with the title right now. Uh, yeah. Benzema was ranked fourth, kind of surprisingly, in the Guardian list of best players in the world. You could argue that he should have been you know, even higher, you know, above the likes of Mo Salah and Messi just on his form this season. I think you know this has been an extremely successful return to the club for Carlo Ancelotti, who has not had to rotate all that much early in the season. I don't think he's had the ability to, 
but has certainly done quite a lot with what we thought was an aging Real Madrid team. But they have proven that they still have, you know, enough quality to dominate this division. Yeah, obviously the Cotas game is not a great example of that, but it required, you know, some pretty heroic goalkeeping and, and defending from the team to keep Madrid off the score sheet in this one. They put up a pretty ungodly 36 shots um, against Cadiz. Um, they had 738 accurate passes to Cadiz's, yes, this is in the course of an entire game, 94. Um, Cadiz had a pass success of, you know, 54%. So this was, this was just a, a nutso game. And I'm not really sure how they were able to keep Madrid off the score sheet. I mean, I guess the one the one spot in the Cadiz game that you know might spark some controversy is Casemiro had a pretty cynical um, tackle uh, right around the halfway line as Cadiz were trying to break, and he he just received the yellow. But I think you know it was from behind. It was blind. Um, it was you know marginally studs up. It it was probably a red at the end of the day, and you know who now who knows how that, that would have changed the complexion of the game. But they round out their year with a, a rather convincing win against uh, Bill Bow with you know three goals in the first 10 minutes of the game, Benzema in the fourth minute, in the seventh minute, and then Sunset for Bill Bow in the 10th. But as you were saying, Benzema, you know, post post Ronaldo at Madrid, Benzema has been, you know, one of the best players over the past three years. And he just continues to score some truly ridiculous goals, including, I think, one of the prettiest curlers I've ever seen um, in this Bill Bow game. And as you said, they are, they're just running away with, with La Liga. Um, and it'll be interesting to see perhaps how far they, they get in the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, Benzema had set his career high for goals in La Liga with 24 back in 2016. Then he kind of regressed a little bit and had 11 and 5 in 2017 and 2018. Since then, he's hit 21, 21, 23. And this year, he's hit 15 goals in just 18 games. So if he keeps this form up, first of all, it's not implausible that he ends up hitting 30 goals this year. Uh, second of all, you know, I think he'll win the Pichichi Award. Right now, his average rating is the highest in La Liga at 8.08. That's just ridiculous. And, uh, you know, obviously he is 34. This run can only go on for so long. He's not getting any younger. But when all is said and done, he'll end up scoring over 300 goals for Real Madrid. You know, I, I hope, I, and I'm assuming that they're going to end up milking him for as much as they can, you know, until this form slows down. And Caleb, that curler in the game was Karim Benzema's 401st career goal in football. So not only is he delivering historic goals, he's also delivering historic numbers in terms of, you know, just his career feats in general in these past three years. And I think in terms of like him, I think he's not only sustained this club through a period of like tremendous uncertainty, you know, that second Zidane tenure ending kind of like not as harmoniously as you might have hoped and this kind of Ancelotti tenure with not as many resources available. I think Kylian Mbappe is probably going to join this club in 2022. I, you can attribute, you know, Madrid being in a strong enough position to still attract Mbappe down to the fact that Benzema has kind of kept them afloat for the past two to three years with his form. Well, I think what's most interesting, all of the Mbappe bit, is that uh, it seems pretty clear or from what I've heard that Madrid have made rather direct overtures for Holland as well. Um, and so I'm starting to become a little concerned of a Madrid team featuring, you know, a future front line of Vinny Holland and Mbappe, um, which could be, you know, the most unfair front line ever, potentially. Well, there is word on the street that Mbappe is re-signing through 2026 with PSG. because He was pictured with a shirt. Um, with the sort of PSG 2026 on the back at this party recently. I don't know. I, I don't think that Madrid can afford both of them, even on a free. Um, but I certainly would not relish the idea of having Mbappe and Holland on the same team, um, especially with, you know, Vinicius and even someone like Rodrigo behind them. Let's, let's move on from that really ominous 
<laughs> both ominous rumors, <laughs> I should say. And uh, let's move on to you know our closing segment here, which are our favorite footballing moments of 2021. I think this has been you know an unusual year for football, but also sort of a monumental one as well. With you know a lot of exciting teams a lot of exciting players coming to the forefront some exciting tournaments both with the Copa America and the Euros happening over the summer I think there is you know storylines aplenty this season I think we should all pick you know maybe one or two favorite moments from this past year maybe we can have some honorable mentions in there as well but you know we'll just let's just open the floor for some some favorite moments of the year so uh, yeah, I mean, my first favorite moment, uh, and sort of, you know, this is sort of recency bias speaking a little bit, but it would be Arsenal taking Spurs to town the first half of that North London derby. There really isn't any sort of grander lesson to take away from this moment, other than it was incredibly fun to watch Arsenal destroy their biggest rivals, you know, in the biggest stage. Uh, and so it might not be as sort of emotional or as, it doesn't have any deeper meaning. It was just awesome and so much fun to watch because. Arsenal hadn't had a performance like that in so, so, so long. I think, I think uh, no, go for it, Caleb. Oh, I, I think my, you know, pick for, or my first pick for, for best moment of the year is, has to be Argentina's Copa America win. Um, you know, I'm a bit of a, a messy partisan uh, in general. I don't really make a secret of that. I also think it's a defendable position, but obviously the, kind of like weight on his back for so long has been, you know, his inability as the quote unquote, you know, best player ever to lead Argentina to international success. And while he himself did not have, you know, too much a part in the final itself in terms of the winning goal off of a great Rodrigo de Paul assist to Di Maria, I think it was very clear both in his response and from the team response and from the nation's response how much it meant for Argentina to win their first international trophy in over two decades. And so I was just very happy for him uh, over the summer when that happened. And, you know, I continue to be uh, happy for him now. For me, there really can only be one moment from this year that I considered to be my footballing highlight. You know, there's a few I thought of, you know, Italy winning the Euros in that incredible run to the final incredible penalty shootout you know obviously marred by the controversy surrounding the three English English players who missed their penalties but you know what a tournament what a resurrection it was for Roberto Mancini's uh, Italian national team I think Messi moving to PSG and you know the whole storm around that seeing him in a kit that was not that of the Blagrana, you know, watching him score his first goal in that game against Man City, you know, that electric counterattack, you know, him playing the one-two with Mbappe and scoring, you know, a classic. But for me, there really can only be one outstanding glancing header from the beautiful dome of one Allison Becker to score the winner for Liverpool and secure them Champions League football at the end of the 2020-2021 Premier League season. It was looking really, really dire. Liverpool had to win all five of their final Premier League games, which is not something that they had done you know, at any point previously in their history. And it was you know, a player who really did not have the best of seasons in 2020, 2021, not only because he had no, you know, recognized center backs ahead of him, you know, it was the great season of Reese Williams and Nat Phillips at the back for Liverpool and occasionally, you know, Fabinho and Jordan Henderson helping out as well when fit, but also, you know, Allison, his form was called into question. He lost his father to a tragic incident in his native Brazil. And, you know, to see him get that moment of, you know, brilliance. It was it was a header that, you know, Robert Lewandowski would have been proud of scoring. You know, it was that technically good. And, you know, it couldn't have happened to uh, a better person and a, and a person who probably needed it the most at that period in his career as well. So Liverpool are, you know, back in the Champions League this season due to the heroics of that, you know, incredible Allison moment. 
Yeah, it's hard to argue about. It's hard to argue about that one. But I was pretty sure that when you brought up that topic as something that we should talk about, that was going to end up being it. But how could it not? I also think there was a great day, um, you know, just when the Super League plans were officially scrapped that day when Chelsea, you know, pulled out after the protests in front of Stanford Bridge, um, and then Arsenal pulled out, and it sort of all came crashing down. I think that was like a very underrated day. Uh, but it showed that fans you know, still have a lot of power as well. And so even though it wasn't on the pitch, I still think that was a, an important thing to recognize in that spring. On that note, my other kind of, I guess, funnier moment of the year was when after Man U Liverpool was canceled the first time because of the fans that broke into the stadium, uh, the second time when Man U fans surrounded what they thought was the Liverpool bus on the highway and like slashed its tires and brought it to a stop. But it turned out that that was just a decoy bus because Liverpool expected the venue fans to kind of Mad Max it. Um, and the game was able to carry on. So that was yeah. also, I think, one of my favorite kind of just ridiculous moments of the year. This really was just the year of Liverpool constantly getting one up on Manchester United, both <laughs> on and <laughs> off the pitch, which is kind of a pleasure to see. You know, on the pitch, we had you know, Liverpool demolishing United at Old Trafford twice, you know, that 4-2 uh, in the COVID season. And also, you know, this past fall with that 5-0 away win. And also, you know, like Caleb, like you're saying, you know, the, uh, the, the decoy bus incident as well and things like that. Yeah, I think that's been, you know, obviously in the Ranić tenor, tenure, we have yet to see him go up against Klopp's Liverpool as of yet. So I guess it's just, it's just a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays to all of our, our listeners. This is a Christmas uh, episode, as in we are recording this on Christmas Day for your consumption. But yes, happy holidays to everyone listening, to everyone who has listened to a Corner Kick episode this past year. You know, we are eternally grateful for that. And, you know, we're so privileged and humbled to be able to bring this show to you, you know, whenever we can. So thank you very much. And we hope you have a lovely new year and holiday season. And with that being said, I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Brits. Nick Strauss. And we will see you all in 2022. <laughs>